0: Welcome to the Amago Day Community Podcast. Hey Amago Day, it's good to be with you, to come into your living room and to celebrate our worship service together. Thanks for still being engaged. I know it's a challenge and we can't wait to all go back to normal, but I'm grateful that you're you're still engaged, still leaning in, serving, giving, worshipping, and I'm just so grateful for that. I shaved my head this week and got so sick of my hair that I just went for it. I encourage all of you to do it. It's such a freeing feeling. Actually, no, don't do that. That gets really weird with uh, religious groups and shaved heads and all that. So, (laughs) needless to say, we are in a series called Risen. And what we're wanting to do is to, to really have a season of resurrection, not simply... One Sunday is, is the church calendar. We often have these longer seasons, and then it can feel like we get to Easter, and it's a day, and it's gone. And the reality is resurrection impacts everything. It changes everything, and it especially changes not just our future, but how we live today. And so today, I want you to open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be in verses 20 through 28, and we're answering the question or Paul is, what happens at the end of time? I think end times gets uh, kind of convoluted within Christianity. And, and there has been massive like church divisions over how uh, people believe different things about how the end occurs. But, but what Paul is going after here in chapter 15 really is what is the heart, what is the picture of the future that we have to look forward to? And so I want you to follow along with me as I read this to you. He says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything has been put under him, it is clear that he does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God would be all in all. One of the things that that Paul is arguing against is a type of dualism that was impacting the Corinthian church. And that dualism continues to impact the church today. Dualism comes from a Platonic thought, from the philosopher Plato and the Stoics, who believed that there was this large discrepancy between the spiritual and the material, that everything about heaven was perfection and everything material and earthly was corruption. And so the, the idea was, how do we escape these physical bodies? How do we escape this earthly world that is corrupted and get to the eternal world, the spiritual world, the perfect world? And that has crept into Christianity as well, so much so that for many people, the gospel is simply reduced to Jesus being able to get you into heaven after you die. And heaven is somewhere up there where we float around with angels and cherubs and harps and all of those things. And the problem with that view is it is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach this dualism. It teaches this beautiful narrative about Jesus Christ, who is the king of the world and has come to die and raised from the dead so that he can restore all things and bring heaven and earth together. And so what I want us to do is I want to walk through this passage verse by verse, section by section, and really try to pick up what is going to happen at the end. And so here's what he says. Verse 20, he's he's following up. From 19 through 12, and he says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And this word, first fruits, is to give them an illustration, something in their mind that they can grab hold of to understand the time that they're in, this first fruits time. My daughter loves to garden. She has been planting things during this moment all over the place. We have little, uh, pots and gardens and everything going on. And she told me today that, that the strawberries are coming. And she knows this because there's one strawberry on the bush. And what that is, is the first fruit. It tells us that because this one has showed up, we know that in the weeks to come, all of the fruit is going to be Produced, And that's what he's saying has happened with Jesus. He says the resurrection is that first strawberry, if you will, and it tells us that it's all coming. All the fruit, the harvest is coming. It's the same with spring. We see one tree bloom and we know all the trees are going to bloom. And so he says to them, the main point of his argument is that Christ is raised from the dead and he is the first one of those who have fallen asleep, all those who have passed away from the Old Testament to to now. And yet he is going to bring this harvest of resurrection with him. Look at verse 21. He says, For since death came through a man... The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. What he's saying is that Jesus is the true human. Uh, That is also the Messiah, meaning he is the king of the world. And Paul tells us that his resurrection is the beginning of a larger harvest And he tells us how that harvest is going to happen. What Paul's doing here in chapter 15 is he's retelling the creation story in light of new creation. And it runs through the whole second half of this chapter. And so Genesis 1 and 2, have those in the back of your mind, the creation account, because it's running underneath the whole of this passage. As well as many of the Psalms, Psalm 8 is a good one, and we heard that earlier, I think. Humanity was meant to rule and reign over the creation together with God. Heaven and earth connected. And what happened in the fall is that this authority that was given to Adam and Eve was stolen by the serpent, by evil forces, when they were deceived. And, and, and at that time, creation goes awry because of sin and death and the dark forces. And thus we entered into what Paul calls elsewhere the present evil age. And so Psalm 8, 6 says, You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. That was the original vocation. And what Paul is saying is that the original intention that was broken where humanity was to reign and rule and steward in righteousness with God over this creation, that original intention that was broken is being put right in new creation through Jesus. And what the resurrection did is it, is it crowned Christ as the true human and the true Messiah, King of the world. And so Jesus, in his renewed, resurrected human life, can be and can do for humankind and all of creation what neither humankind or creation could do for itself. Man, that is so important. I want to say that again. Jesus, in his renewed and resurrected human life, can be and can do... For humankind and all of creation, what neither humankind nor creation could do for themselves, that he is the true Adam, the true human, who is going to put the world right, who will reign with God on earth and steward it with justice and love and perfection. Look at verse 23. He says, but each in turn, Christ, the First fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Verse 23 tells us that first Christ has been raised, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. He's going to get what type of bodies that we might have at the resurrection. He's going to get there, but not yet. That's a little later next week. But, but he's talking about the second coming of Christ. And Jesus often taught about the fact that he would come again. And within the church, you know, we see these controversies of when it'll come and how it's going to happen. And I, and I don't want to sort of diminish those. I think they're good conversations. It boils down to the fact that Jesus himself said, I don't know when I'm coming back. Only the Father knows that. So we need to veer away from from when and how. But what Paul is telling us is what it will be. And he says that essentially it's going to be a royal appearing of the true king of the world. And that those who are alive at the time and that those who have died are raised with him in glorified bodies. And that is a picture that should truly give us hope and longing like I want that day to be today. Paul teaches this elsewhere for the church in Thessalonica. He says in chapter 4, verse 14, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. He uses this language of fallen asleep for death. And he says, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will raise first. What that is, is a retelling of the Easter story. And he's saying what happened when Jesus rose from the dead is going to happen to to those of us who are dead in Christ, right? That we will have that same Easter resurrection. And after that, he says, We who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. He says it this way in the church of Philippi. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who, the, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. And, and some of you might be getting caught up even now with that dualism. Like, well, he's talking about heaven, our citizenships in heaven. But what he, when he talks about heaven, he talks about it as coming to earth. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we're awaiting a Savior from there who's coming here. And by the power that enabled him to bring everything under his control, will give us resurrected, will raise us in a resurrected body like his, which is an incredible thought. And so he's saying this is how it works. Christ rose first, the first fruit. And then comes the harvest, all of us who belong to him. And in verse 24, then he says, then the end will come. It's interesting that Paul doesn't talk a lot about the intermediate state, the time between our death and the time of the resurrection when we will receive our glorified bodies. But we're not in some purgatory type thing. What we are is absent from the body, and present with the Lord. He doesn't tell us a ton about that, but as he writes, particularly in his older years, he begins to talk about that intermediate state more. And that's simply a time where we're awaiting this final coming of Christ and the final resurrection, the harvest. And so it's not that we just disappear or that our souls are somehow buried with our bodies. No, our souls have already been remade already are new creations in Christ, and they will be with him, but he will then raise us together and we will have glorified bodies that fit with our new creation hearts. So verse 24, he says, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus, he's telling us, is bringing creation, all of creation, under his saving and um, liberating rule of its creator by defeating, right? All dominion, all authority, all power that he's coming to conquer all the forces of darkness, all the forces of evil, and then the last enemy is death. And, and all through here, he's quoting and he's alluding to uh, the Psalms and the book of Daniel, particularly Psalm 110, this picture of military victory, uh, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, the kingdom of God coming and reigning forever. And he tells us that once those enemies are put under his feet, then that final enemy of death is defeated. That, that started on Easter morning. The age of resurrection that broke in to this present evil age comes to completion with death finally and forever defeated. It's that first flower of spring sprung up on Easter And then when he comes and we are given resurrected bodies, all the harvest is is there. It's abundant and death is gone forever. It's so important that we get this, right? It means that it's not normal to die. What's normal is to not want to die. We were not created to die. Death is an enemy. Death broke into a good creation. And so we know now that death though, an enemy, is not the end. We grieve and we lament. Still, we need to, we must. There is no way to go through this time of COVID and not grieve. I had a friend, uh, a person in Imago who is just such a, one of our uh, first responders. And and was holding the hand of a woman who had battled COVID for nine days and then finally had passed away. And he, she's all by herself. And um, that's happening with so many men and women right now. They're, they're by themselves. They're dying. And these first responders on the front line are, are caring for them and loving, loving them in that moment. How can we not? We must lament that. Everything in us says that is not how it's supposed to be. The death is the enemy. But, but what the gospel brings us even into a horrible situation like this, is a hope and an assurance. Not just a ticket to heaven, which really, if it's thinking, well, that's great. The more people, the more of us pass away, we all get to go to heaven. No, he's saying. We have a hope of physical, eternal life in a world that is filled with God and love without the threat of death, without the threat of evil or sin. I want us to have that right now. I want us to have the kind of security that can look back and go, the grave is empty, right? We know the fruit is coming because we've tasted that first strawberry, so to speak. We can look back, but now we can look forward to what is being promised, that the harvest is coming, that death is gonna be defeated, not just evil and sickness and all the enemies of God, but death itself is gonna be defeated. And to have that right now so that you and I The people of Jesus in this moment can be those who live in hopeful lament. And that's so important, that we lament with our neighbors, that we lament with our friends, that we lament with our family, but we can also carry this hope. And and, and what would cause us to pray, uh, God, your kingdom come, may it be in heaven like it is Uh, on earth is in heaven, what would make us pray that more than knowing that that's the future that's coming? So we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. God, may your heaven come and let it be on earth as it is in heaven. We want the world to be the way it's supposed to be. And our promise is that that has started and it's coming. Right? It's coming. So what can it look like for you and I, right now in this moment, to be the people who lament and hope, who weep tears, who, who feel the pain, who grieve, but also hold on to the hope that, that this is not how the story ends, right? The story ends with all being put right by the One who has saved us already, Jesus Christ. So verse 27 says this. He says, For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under his feet, him, it's clear that he does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. And he's he's wanting them to understand that Jesus is fully God and fully man and that He's not usurping God, that the the imagery of the Trinity is still in place, the Father, Son, and Spirit, but also now Jesus has united humanity to that union. And so Jesus becomes the world's ruling king, right? Here's the picture. Jesus is under the Father, but he's over the world, and he's ruling with wise just, sacrificial, holy wisdom and loving power, rescuing the world that would have otherwise been ruled by the chaotic forces of darkness. When we read the Gospels, we understand the heart, the compassion, the type of leader that Jesus is and Jesus ruling the world with us under him and with him. That is a picture of Genesis 1 and 2, right? That is That was marked out for the human race, but but Adam and Eve feel, failed. And then God comes and He chooses Israel and there to be a servant, and Israel failed. And God, not just going, you know what, I'm done with this. He keeps coming after us and provides us the Savior and King that we need coming to us himself in Jesus. And what's beautiful about this picture is that we will be helping him rule and reign, right? We are going to continue with our original vocation of stewarding the world with our king. And and this is why I want you to read 1 Corinthians while I'm going through this, because Paul gives us these little hints, these crumbs, these sort of Easter eggs that he leaves throughout the book. In, Philippi, in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, he's, he's in this argument because the, the believers at the church are starting to take each other to court and sue each other. And, and what Paul wants is he wants the future, this picture, this reality that's coming to be present now in how we live. And so as he's he's rebuking them, he's correcting them about suing each other. And he says, or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? What he's saying is, when the future comes, that we're going to be helping Jesus steward this good creation. That is the intent of Genesis 1 and 2, restored In the final things and so that's why I'm asking you to read this because what what it does is it asks the question how does the future impact how we live today right and you'll see it all through the book but it means that we are to live secure that Jesus has already risen that first fruit that first wheat that first flower But we also are to live secure and in the hope that He will raise us and put the world right, the final harvest. And what difference does that make? Well, it makes all the difference in the world. It means that we can suffer all things because we know the future that's coming. And some of you are suffering right now. I know that. You've lost jobs, you've lost businesses. You don't know what the next six months to one year holds. Uh, It it can feel like in the midst of a moment like this, what difference does it make that Jesus rose from the dead? And I tell you, it means that you can endure all things because you are secure in the, the resurrection of Jesus and the future that's coming. And that's why Paul says, man, if you get this, you'll understand that that we don't have to be afraid of life or death or heaven or hell or anything because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That love includes care. It includes provision, right? It includes the fact that the God who is coming to make this right is here, present now by His Spirit. And so you can suffer You can endure all things. You can persevere through all things in hope because we know how the story ends, and it is a glorious ending. It also means that how we live now is that we drink of the Spirit because the Spirit is our relationship in the present of our hope in the future, right? When, when, when Jesus ascended, He sends His Spirit so that you and I right now can taste and see that God is good. We are sealed by the Spirit for this day. And so we are already living in that future now by the Holy Spirit. And lastly, we live in faith, hope, and love. One of the things you'll see as you read 1 Corinthians... You'll see that when Paul gets to that beautiful, beautiful chapter 13, the the love chapter, we always hear it read at weddings, which is, you know, that's great. But what he's really getting at there is he's saying, faith, hope, and love are the things that we will take with us into eternity. And the greatest of these is love. So what that means now is that as you love your neighbor, as you love and care for those around you, as the Spirit of God compels you to love and bear witness to the grace and mercy of Jesus right now, that that is going to last forever. That is going to remain when the kingdom comes in its fullness. That is the thing we can do now that we will continue to do forever. And can I hear Michelle Lang say amen? All right. The second part, the very last part of this passage, it says God will be all in all. What does it mean that God is all in all? Well, it means this. It means that God will fill the earth with his glory and that the world will be animated with his light and his life. And we see pictures of this in Revelation. But God being all in all, it's not some pantheistic sort of, you know, everything is God. No, it is that God present, heaven and earth connected, and Jesus ruling and reigning on earth with us. It means that God is filling the whole earth with his glory, that the world is now alive, it's living, it's sustained, it's animated with his light and his life. Imagine that, right? Imagine every culture on earth with all of its uniqueness and its distinction, but filled and animated with God as its source. How beautiful will that be? right? It is not going to be a monolithic humanity in the new creation. All the distinctiveness of race and ethnicity and uh, where we come from around the world, it's all going to be there. How beautiful will it be when that world is animated by God as its source? How peaceful will it be in a world right now that That disagrees, that goes to war over difference. Now it will be shalom, it will be peaceful and wonderful. One humanity multifaceted in all of its distinction, but united in love from God, united in love for God, and united in love for one another in all creation. That is what we say, hallelujah, that is a good thing. And so what it sounds like to me, it sounds like the best party you could ever imagine, a party that goes on and on and is, is not it doesn't run low. It gets fueled by the life of God. And so when, you know, I think of pictures that I used to have of heaven where we're just up in heaven, you know, singing all the time. And 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 I'm sure we will, though. God is there. I want to worship Him. But it, it's just this picture of like a choir that goes on forever. And if you have a voice like mine, that's not good news. Um But what it really is, it is a picture of a wedding feast is what Revelation uses. It's this beautiful marriage between God and humanity, between heaven and earth. It's a picture of worship, right? It's a picture of worship. And if you were to go to the Psalms, I'd encourage you to do this this week. Psalms 93 through 100 are really Psalms that point to sort of the the fulfillment of God's kingdom. And Psalm 98, I love how the psalmist puts it because it it echoes and it points forward to what Paul is talking about. He says, "'Sing to the Lord a new song, "'for he has done marvelous things. "'His right hand and his holy arm "'have worked salvation for him. "'The Lord has made his salvation known "'and revealed his righteousness to the nations.' He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with harp, with harp, and the sound of singing with trumpets and blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it. The world and all who live in it, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing joy together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth and He will judge the world in righteousness and all peoples with equity. That is a picture, my friend, of what is coming That is a picture of creation and all of us animated by the very life of God. That is a hope that we have been promised and is secured because the tomb is empty. And I can imagine some of you are sitting there and going, man, this is a little far-fetched, you know. We, uh, we pride ourselves on being intellectual and thoughtful people, and when we begin to talk about things like this, we, well, some of us can kind of go, I don't know if I'm buying that. Um, again, the security comes from the fact that the tomb is empty, so resurrection has happened. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. Um, they've never found the body, the tomb has been empty and stayed empty. But, but I, would, I would push against that in a different direction, right? Because I would say that for all time, humanity has sought to do this very thing, to create a world and to order and steward that world in whatever a particular people group decided was right or how they define righteousness. Um, we know that those are competing ideas, which has created war and all kinds of horrible things. But somewhere deep down in our DNA is, is a memory. It's a memory of Eden. It's a, it's a memory of how the world is supposed to be, which is why sin and death and, and, and all of that we know implicitly, intrinsically within our heart, something knows, like, that's not right. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And in a moment like this, when all, literally all the empires of the world have been halted and brought to a standstill, we can pretty much bank on the fact that we are in our own humanity and power can't figure it out. But we still long... For this story to be true. And could it be that that longing. Was placed in you. By the God that you were created for. Could it be that that memory. Deep within the DNA strands. That are within us. That says the world should be like Shalom. The longing that I have. For a world that that looks like. What Paul is describing. Could it be that, that that's a true longing because you were created for it to be this way. And the main point that Paul is making is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the starting point whereby the Father is completing the work of rescuing and renewing the original creation and He will raise all of Jesus' people to new bodily life with Him. And that is a day brothers and sisters, that I'm longing for. That is the day that I hope you will pray with me that it comes today, that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. And it's a day that empowers us in the moment to endure all things and suffer all things and to stand in hope and security because we can look back and say, that tomb is empty And we can look into this moment right now and say, I have tasted that new creation life through the Holy Spirit. And so I can live in this moment, grieving and lamenting for sure, but doing that with a secure hope that the future that is broken in today is coming in fulfillment. I say this all the time. I love the imagery of Bob Dylan right when he talks about the the kingdom of god as a slow train coming the the engine has come and we're waiting for the rest of the train to come with it and god in his patience and sovereignty and his his wisdom that is way beyond any of us is allowing there to be a time for us to still come into the kingdom and today if you are unsure that that you know jesus christ i would just encourage you to take a moment and say, Jesus, I believe, right? I'm putting my faith in you. Come and be my Lord and my Savior. I want that hope. I want that security. I want that peace with you. And I want to be part of a future that will never end. Brothers and sisters, I love you. I can't wait for us to be together again. I just want to pray us out of here today. Father, thank you. Jesus, thank you. Holy Spirit, thank you for being a God that did not let the failures of your creation of humanity, of your people, stop you from putting the world right. And that Jesus, you are such a glorious, powerful, resurrected King that that we have, uh, at least for me in this moment, God, I I am caught up, I am speechless and how beautiful you are, Jesus, and how good you are. And I pray, God, that you would come. I pray today could be the day, Jesus, that you would come, that we would be caught up in the air, that we would come down here with you with new bodies, right? With all the enemies under your feet, with death defeated, with you reigning as king over the world and the father animating and giving life to this new creation that it could be the way it is always meant to be and i pray right this minute that those who are hearing my voice that don't believe in you that that are yet impressed by that longing that say this sounds like what what i wish it was god that they would trust you today that in Jesus' name, they would say, Lord Jesus, save me. I want to follow you. And that, God, you would do it. We know you will. The Holy Spirit would enter their life and they would be transformed. Father, we pray for all who are suffering right now that your presence would be with them. And would we, your people, be those who can walk with hopeful lament? Because we know that there is a day that is not far away when every tear will be wiped away and there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things will have gone away and behold, you will be making everything new. And until that day, will you find us faithful? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Love you, Mago Day.